Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I am Sebastian Teotrio. And I'm Alex Hollingsworth. Welcome to The Hidden Curriculum. A podcast where we talk about all the stuff you didn't learn in graduate school. everyone. We hope that you've had a great week. We are very excited to bring you an episode today. Uh, before we get in, uh, Sebastian, uh, you live in North America. You're from South America. So outside of those two places, uh, where's the last continent you went and where's the next continent you want to go? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Last continent I went was Europe. I uh, went to Spain and Greece. Now it's a lot of fun. Um, that's before the pandemic, of course. And the continent I plan on visiting that is not the Americas, I am... Um, to be honest, I think it's going to be Europe again, just because I have a, my best friend lives there. But I really been wanting to go to China again. Um, I have I have this like really cool interest in China. I've been there before, and I really want to go again because I think it's a super interesting country. So it's huge maybe, too, right? Yeah. So you're, you're gonna go same same part? Uh, no, right. I would like to do something else. I mean, yeah, exactly. But I also like I never been to you know Australia either. I've never been to any uh, African countries. So that like I really want to go to Egypt. I don't know why. I also want to go to Israel. There's so many places I want to There's go. cool but, stuff in Egypt. Yeah, what do you mean? There are pyramids. Yeah. Of course. No, but yeah, yeah. I, I also, I mean, I used to know a lot about Egyptian culture in whatever high school because I don't know, something of assignment that I got really into. But yeah, but it's probably going to be Europe again, I would say. Nice. Fun, fun fact, Egyptian falafels have fava beans. No chickpeas. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, no. Fava bean falafels for the win. What about you? What's, what's your last next continent? So I, I think the last one, I guess like technically with the layover, it's Europe, but it was Africa outside of those two. And then- I, Which countries did you visit? So we were in South Africa for, okay. for the majority of the time. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I think we had a bunch of layovers. So I don't, I don't actually know. <laughs> technically it was probably like the UK or something with a layover. Okay. Um, and then, man, I just want to go hiking again. So mm. like, I don't know, Iceland or something. I just want to like fly and like be away from my house. <laughs> yeah. what, what about our guests today what about chinamelu what about you where's your last and next continent so i'm in nigeria right now so there you go i don't know if it counts as the last and the next but right <laughs> I, I think i'm that, in nigeria that my next my next continent obviously will be um north america so, yeah. <laughs> That's fair. That's so um wait what time yeah, is it over there it's it's seven o'clock it's seven oh, okay 13. it's not super late okay yeah no 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 <laughs> <laughs> what about you Audi? oh um i've been dreaming about saint lucia so i'm an avid instagram user and i follow <laughs> a lot of traveler accounts like you know Ooh. black women traveling around the world and i saw this um place in saint lucia where the hotel room is like outside there are no doors or walls oh my god everything is just out like you wake up and then you're greeted by the ocean view and mm-hmm. birds and all that stuff so i am hoping to see that soon. sounds really nice <laughs> that's like the instagram life but then i feel like you get there and you're like there's bugs like, yeah <laughs> i mean I, dogs don't bother me too much as far as you're like far away i'm good <laughs> um, <laughs> um so i was last the last continent i was in was um africa 
Um, I'm from Kenya myself, so that's home. Oh. Um, and right now I'm in Europe, and I think I'm going to be around here for at least as, <laughs> um, for a while until the pandemic is <laughs> over. Um, yeah, and I, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, just moved to the Netherlands, so I want to go see it. It's oh. not the first time I've been there, but I want to see different parts of the country with her. So I'm looking forward to yeah. that. Well, that was a, a more interesting and diverse set of answers than I anticipated. So we, we didn't pre-plan this, everyone. And as you may have guessed, we're doing something a little different today. Instead of just having one guest, we have three guests. That's right. It's the first time for having three guests. <laughs> yeah. Please cut us some slack. Uh, but uh, so our special guest today um, is the whole team from the Research and Color Foundation. Um, so today we, and you've heard from them uh, already, uh, we're speaking with uh, Chinamela Okafor, who's the president and founder of Research and Color, uh, Rama Ahmed, who's the vice president, and Aldi Chima Akosionu who is the program and member mentorship director. Uh, Chinamelu is an incoming PhD student at the very fancy uh, Harvard oh, University in governance. Actually, everyone here is very fancy except yeah. for Sebastian <laughs> and I. Um, Rama is a PhD student at LSE and Audi is a PhD student at the University of Minnesota. Thank you all for being here today. How are you guys doing? Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Pumped. Pumped. <laughs> all right. So in addition to... Um, First Last Continents, uh, we always ask our guests to share a fun fact about themselves with the audience. So I guess you could go as a team or individually, whatever you prefer. <laughs> what is your uh, shareable fun fact? Uh, my, fun my fun fact, I love the arts. I grew up going to Broadway shows and plays with my family and my mm. uncles. So I love operas, ballets, plays, symphonies, all of that. And I also play the violin. So Ooh, wow. yeah, I guess that's two fun facts, but it's Fun facts, nonetheless. So. Okay. I love it. So that's going to be your escapade when you do your PhD then, for sure. You think so? I mean, you have to have something, but that sounds appropriate. Very, very highbrow, too. Violin. I'll go next. My fun fact is that I used to cater on the side. I had a side hustle catering mm. in between my master's after I was done with my master's program and before I started my PhD program because PhD I, I was like nope this has to go <laughs> I it for about three years there and mostly Nigerian cooking so Nigerian food like mm. the almighty Nigerian jollof rice emphasis on Nigerian jollof rice <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's like uh is there like a preferred food that people want you to cook where you're like oh that's too hard to cook or is there any mm. is there anything yeah, like, tension there Typically, I will, like, when people con would contact me, I would send them a list of foods that I could cook, and then with the prices and stuff like that. So I did, like, small events, sometimes even just meal prep for the week for those who didn't want to bother right. cooking, to, like, large 150 people events. Whoa. So I don't wow. miss standing long hours at all, or washing dishes. Like, think about washing dishes yeah. for 150 people That's in between. Excellent. What about the kitchen and all the utensils? Do you still have all of that? Oh my gosh, there's somewhere in storage. So I've been trying to oh, get Oh wow, because that's a lot of that's a lot yeah. of yeah things. Yeah. You and you have to like be attached here in Minnesota, at least the rule says <laughs> you have to be attached to a commercial kitchen. So I had right. to maintain those licenses and stuff like that. But, I, I feel like I may not get this opportunity again. So excuse me if I interject with a totally selfish question. How long if someone made me suya and I leave it in the cabinet before it goes bad? Because I've used it before and it was great, but then I haven't used all of it and I don't want to throw it away. I would the actual suya or the suya yeah. powder? Suya spice. So the, the powder. How, the how long have you had it? Two years. 
two <laughs> years i I've used it before to... and then we found it i think i think it's time to let that one go Is it oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's what i thought too and i just didn't want to get I, I felt so bad because I didn't use it all because I wanted to save it. So is it a spice? What is it? I'm not familiar. It's a spice. So it's a combination of different ingredients created, including... But like why does it need to be in the fridge, the spice? It doesn't... No, it doesn't need to go. It doesn't need to, but if you want to preserve it, it's, it's better long to put it in a... Yeah, for a longer time, since he clearly wants to keep it for two years. You can still use it, but it just won't be flavorful. Is that the issue? Yeah, it will taste more like dust, I would say. <laughs> well, if Manzi ever listens to this, I'm sorry that I didn't use all of it, Manzi. Thank you for bringing it to me. Wow, that's hot commodity, man. Like, no, it is. It is. Good suya spice is hard to come by. He's not lying. <laughs> so um my fun fact is um i have a teeny tiny side of me that likes um extreme fun spots and um <laughs> when i went skydiving once in a freezing clear december morning in a town like, oh yeah, like chicago i was really committed to it because even getting there was so hard um so for a while after that i really just wanted to do base jumping but then it's really dangerous. Um, then it's wanting to scale Mount Everest. But then I stop because it's not really good for the environment. And I hate the pool. No. Um, so now I'm contenting myself with uh, trying bungee jumping specifically. Um, My gosh, that's so intense. There's one particular bridge that I think of in New Zealand that <laughs> that I've seen like videos of. And I'm just like, I just want to do it there. I don't even remember wow. the name right now, but I just want to do it in that particular bridge in New Zealand. That's the funnest fact. That's so intense. So you, I mean, this is a bad word, but are you like one of those people that seeks the adrenaline of stuff like that? Um, I want to say no, but really, it's true. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it has to be. That's so funny. Wow. Yeah, and that's, I remember so after the skydiving, I think I was on a high for that entire week. It was right. right. Of course. Right. Right. You have to do a lot of jumps before you start base jumping, right? I, I similarly got like super into it. And I was like, it's only like 150 jumps that you need to do. And like, I don't have time or money for that, you know, but it sounds so fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm one of those people that I would never do a skydiving. Not even if I were in the amazing race is the season finale. And like, I this I have to do, like, I would still be like, nah, thanks. I'm going to go ahead and lose a million dollars. <laughs> I just happily but, signed the waiver forms because they make you sign a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. And then I had to give a, uh, the address of uh, somebody who could, uh, I suppose, if something happened, would receive, as right. they say, my remains. <laughs> and I am. Oh my God. <laughs> I asked a friend and the friend was she didn't know what it was so I didn't tell anyone what it was for and oh, my God. Like, oh are you sending me flowers and I was like uh no more like, <laughs> your remains so do do when you meet other people that done that like are do those things are you like immediately like do you have a connection or you were like no everyone has their own you know um kind of sometimes again it depends on you know there's some people who are you know that chasing the adrenaline there's some people who are a bit extreme with that um so that kind of scares me <laughs> but then there are others who are you know just mildly want to dabble in this and then i'm like yeah those are my people <laughs> okay <laughs> Let's talk about the Research in Color Foundation. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit about what the foundation's about and maybe how it started? Yeah, so the goal of Research in Color is to increase the number of minority students in economics and economics adjacent fields like public policy, political economy, applied economics, finance, et cetera. 
Um, and so we're a nonprofit and we match prospective PhD students with established mentors who are generally economists and quantitative social scientists in a one-on-one -on -one mentorship program. And uh, the program is six to eight months. During this time, the mentees have a chance to sort of work on together with their mentor on a short research project of their own choosing. So that's the point, of, that's the goal of it. And I mean, that's what Research in Color is, but the goal is to just shift the status quo in economics in these adjacent fields through mentorship. So mentorship is our intervention of choice. Um, however, we add a twist to it because we're doing, we're using a bottom up approach to mentorship and centering the mentee in every single thing that we do. So that's not often the case in RA positions or pre-docs or other mentorship programs that exist. And so, um, yeah, in addition to that, we, our mentees get targeted advice on their careers. We have one-on-one -on -one office hours that have been phenomenal, as well as skills building workshops from people like Jesse Rothstein, et cetera. So one quick question, can you get share some stats? Like how many years have you been doing this? How many mentees and mentors you have? It's our second year doing the program. I know we're so young and uh, <laughs> we have, we have uh, 36 mentors and 36 mentees and yeah, That's so awesome. 72 people in, in total. There might be attrition by the end of the program, but right now. Right. Yeah. And maybe a, a, maybe a little bit on um, how the whole thing started. Was it, you know, you had the idea and talked to your peers about it or how did the whole thing work out? Yeah, so I, yes, I had the idea. It started from a place of frustration because I, I didn't even understand how to go about getting a PhD. It was mm. the most I don't, opaque, like, track that I, I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. And then I got to the World Bank and I met my first mentor. I got to the International Finance Corporation or the World Bank Group. That's where I met Rahma. And I had, and I got my first mentor there, Tristan Reed. And literally Tristan gave me access to resources that I had never had. And when I tell you my, I just, my trajectory was just exponential awesome. at that point. It didn't make any sense. It didn't make sense why I was so confused before. And then when I got there, <laughs> it just made sense, right? Mm. And so Rahma and I had formed a relationship there. And then we left and I had reached out to her when I thought of the idea because I was sitting at Princeton like, man, this is so frustrating. Just right. trying to get into a PhD is so difficult. Um, I think people need mentorship because when I had mentorship, it was insane. Now this is an N of one, but I actually do think right. it's, it's it can really shift. It can really open up doors for people and and allow them to to, to see what they can actually do in this life. Like I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't mm -hmm. know what a PhD meant. I didn't know I could be like an academic or do research, et cetera. So yeah, that's awesome. so this is really neat. I, I guess I have a question or maybe this, maybe I'm starting to bleed into the topic of the day a little bit, but <clears throat> how do you identify potential mentees? So a, a thing that's always like not concerning to me, but is on my radar is like <clears throat> the always takers, like people that uh, we're going to maybe go get a PhD and now it's just kind of like which PhD are going to be the people who are most likely to Google and uncover something like research and color. It's like, how do you find those students who maybe are in the most need of mentorship, like who might not even know that they need it? That's a really good question. Something um, that we think through during when we start reviewing applications. So before I answer that question, let me just say that our next um, application cycle is coming up this fall. Um, applications are open for about a month from September to October for both mentee and mentor app uh, applications. And then we announce our mentee mentor pairs in December ahead of the early spring kickoff. Um, but to your question, Alex, I think that's a really good point. 
Um, it's like, how do you identify who would benefit the most um, that we would, wouldn't be caught regardless or without this process? And when we, um, one, our, our process is low, quote unquote, low barrier to entry, right? So mm. it's, you don't have to have received a, or even finish your bachelor's degree or your master's degree. You mm-hmm. don't have to have all the state are, you know, experiences under your belt. You right. don't have to prove to us that you can code at an expert level, but we just want to be able to tell, to see that you are interested in exploring or understanding more about your opportunities within economics. And that you have, there's some sort of prompt where you're, you're thinking towards applying for a, a PhD mm-hmm. or towards a PhD in in economics mm-hmm. so we take people at different levels of experience but the key is trying to figure out if they are truly interested um in pursuing this and you mm-hmm. know what what is it about them like what is what is motivating them um towards this journey they don't have to again have the language down pat or you know be a state expert that's where, where the mentors will come in mm-hmm. and you know further um experiences down the line will come in but we just want to make sure that they are keenly interested in pursuing that's I, that's really neat. I think like it's in stark contrast to a lot of the like pre-doc opportunities and things. Like yes. I get I, I get why there are coding tests and things for pre-docs, but like I look at some of these things and I'm like, I would have 100% failed that certainly before graduate school, but also during the majority of graduate school. I think I would have failed some of these coding tests. So I think that's a very nice sort of, uh, I don't know if like differentiation is even the right word, but like emphasis that you're putting on just like, hey, if you're interested, we're here for information. So that's really yeah. neat. Even as we try and keep um, our barriers to entry reasonably low, um, especially to attract students who may not have had the benefits of, you know, years of prep, um, students of color, students from low income backgrounds. Um, we at the same time realize that there's a certain degree of self-selection still going on. And right. um, part of that reason is why we are working, we're trying, we're trying to work with JPAL on a program that um, tries to let students from an earlier age group um, around high school um, let them know about what economics is, what careers it can lead to. Um, awesome. And so, yeah, we we do have we do have that mm-hmm. going on at the back of mind to kind of transform the field from a very early um, start. That's fantastic. You know, maybe the program is relatively young, two years, but I know you guys put a lot of work, and my guess is that is only going to get more and more popular. So like eventually it's too that it's going to be this challenge of like you getting more applications than you already have, right? That like you can, you can get until, um, is it, is, is, is it part of that decision making not only just are they interested in, but like, is there a person that would pay people that they have the, the most marginal benefit or, or is that a different yeah. kind of decision and how do you de- identify those people too? Yeah, so we admit mentees with a range of experience, some more than others. And we're looking for, I don't know, we're looking essentially for the diamonds in the rough. It doesn't matter if you work with the top economists, you work at the best organization, et cetera. We're looking for individuals who actually have a need to be in research and color. Like there's a need, there's some community lacking. Mm -hmm. There's some training that they need to do with independent research. There's some guidance that they didn't receive. So um, we're trying to work on assessing our applicants holistically and not just looking at who has the best skills. I think that's what Adi alluded to earlier. And so um, we are working on figuring out some criteria, but the idea of criteria already brings in, it just it oh, kind of, yeah, you know, like cri- having criteria for who should be in a program 
sort of it's biased towards individuals who are benefit who benefit from the system so mm. it's like us having very specific criteria is kind of an issue and so we kind of look at every single case holistically we sit down and we think through and we try to understand who these individuals are with what they give us with the narrative that they that they write in their personal statement in their x y and z and we want them to just really talk to us about why they like research like right. why do you want to do research why do you think that this is so influential why do you think this is so phenomenal and how can we mm. help you because the goal is to center you in this program not anyone else right. so i think that's what we do we take time it does take a long time i was about to say that so, that probably takes a lot of time and the more applications you get that's gonna i mean so just reminder these are all graduate students putting yeah. in all this time. So this is extra amazing. For free. And then in addition, <laughs> no. uh, I, I just have a question. Uh, so let's say a lot of people that listen to this podcast, um, we do have some number of people that are already faculty members. Um, let's say you're a faculty member somewhere and you're like, this sounds awesome. I would love to be a mentor. Is that possible? How, how could someone get involved that wants to be involved? Yeah. So we, uh, like Audie said, we... Our cycle opens up in September for mentors and mentees. And if you go to our website, we'll have our application. The application's open there. Um, so we'll, we'll pub on Instagram, Twitter, you know, social media, as well as send out emails for when our next call, um, our, our next call for mentors and mentees. But I think it's also important that if you want to be a mentor, which is great, um, you guys also have a process for mentor. Is that correct? Yes, we kind of, we don't help mentor. The goal of Research in Color is not necessarily to help mentors become better mentors, but it's to center, to center our mentees and ha- let them have the best experience. So by helping our mentors grow in their ability to establish trust, build a genuine and supportive relationship with their mentees and sort of cater, cater to the mentees and play, we're placing their needs at the forefront. So during, during our one-on-one mentor calls, we list out a few things that mentors should keep in mind when interacting with their mentees. And this includes um, the, the issue of the power differential, community building, positionality, and shifting your mentality. So in full disclosure, I'm one of the mentors for this program. And I was like blown away about the preparation and the training that I was receiving from these individuals that I was like, we got to bring you to the podcast and you got to say this to the rest of the world because I think it would be super valuable. So we, we are uh, being selfishly instilling some of their intellectual property here, but they're being gracious <laughs> enough to share that with us um, for the podcast. Um, so yeah, let's, let's talk a little about this kind of like mini training that you guys are doing and these talking points, uh, that you have for the mentor and go, go ahead and take it away and we can make it into a conversation. So I'd be happy to take it on from here. Um, and there's just one thing that I wanted to add is, um, faculty members are listening. Please do feel free to apply when our, um, application cycle opens up, but do recognize that it does involve quite a bit of work. We don't believe that because you're a faculty member or because you have a PhD, you're necessarily a good mentor. Um, and so you have to enter knowing that you there are certain um, values that we have and that we would expect you to um, abide by them. And that this may sometimes mean that you have to step out of your comfort zone or just put in a bit more work than you would think, you know, um, mentorship program would, would entail. So just just that um, just that disclaimer. Um, so the, the, the other thing that Chinamalu mentioned is the power differential. And this is particularly important. Um, and rather subtle thing, because it really sets the tone for the relationship between any two individuals, you know. Um, So if there's a mentor who feels very protective of their seniority in in a relationship with a mentee, or a mentee who feels that they're continually being reminded that they're subordinate, you know, in position, Mm. 
experience, knowledge, grants, funding, you know, anything, um, <laughs> then obviously that relationship cannot allow for the type of open exchange of ideas that uh, proper mentorship and indeed, you know, scholarship as a whole is supposed to entail. Um, the mentee has to be empowered to feel that while they are seeking the support of this individual, the mentor, they're still able to disagree, assert different positions, maybe implement their work in a way that's different from uh, the mentors. Um, and in other words, be seen as scholars in their own rights who deserve respect because of that. Um, and so we we make it a point of reminding our mentors that this they're not necessarily the ones calling the shots here. Um, and that this person is not like, again, like Chinamalu said, they're not in some kind of relationship, contractual relationship, like, you know, an RA or a fellow of that sort. No, nothing like that. They are scholars who are just kind of relying on you for guidance. And so it's not like you can get to dictate to them what to do or what not to do. Um, and so we make it a point to emphasize that to um, our mentors. And this is really tied into thinking about our own positionalities, all of us. Our experiences in you know, identities shape and may potentially bias how we process what goes on around us. Um, and it's no different in mentorship. So a mentor has to keep in mind that as objective as they are, and you know, we know how academics like to see themselves as very, very objective. Um, <laughs> you know, they could never be swayed by anything personal. Um, we they have to realize that uh, what they, how they understand it, what a mentee shares with them, um, is shaped in part by their own perceptions and their past experiences that these perceptions are based on. And so even when they have things in common with their mentee, uh, maybe some similar set of experiences or they share the same ethnicity, race or gender, uh, we urge our mentors to leave room to appreciate that even these similar experiences can end up having very different outcomes when filtered through the individual lens and social circumstances of the mentee. So it's not entirely helpful if a mentee shares something uh, and then the mentor responds by saying, well, when I was at your stage, right. I like XYZ. And that happens a lot, yeah. right? Because they, they're trying to, um, and just to like quickly right, insert some interruption here, yeah. they're trying to uh, be like, yeah, I'm like you, and like uh, by you trying to get them like realize that we're similar, yeah. it's actually kind of weird because maybe that other person would be like, yeah, we're actually kind of different, even though you think yeah. we're very similar, <laughs> right? And I think that's super important in in the way that yeah. you phrase that. That we kind of have recognized that like we could just be very well different people, even though we share even the same language, right? Mm -hmm. Which is something that I think mm -hmm. also some people are like, oh, because we're both you know speaking this language, we're mm -hmm. we're good to go, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, and so we try and just remind our uh, mentors to be very um, um, aware of that. Do not try, and you know, you are trying to be familiar, have some sort of familiarity with your mentee, and that's great. But do not, in that process, expect them to um, just elide certain things about themselves or like hide certain parts of it, their individuality, because you would be, um, you would for some reason take it the wrong way. So we just, you know, mm -hmm. just leave room for uh, for people being themselves. Um, so another thing that's important to bring up, both with regards to the power of differential and positionality, is that a lot of times people do things that hurt others. Um, and by way of explanation, they default to saying, you know, I meant well. So that mm. may very well be the case, but good intentions are just not enough. Um, so when you mess up, whether you're a mentee or a mentor, as we all wants to do at some point or other, we encourage our mentors to not emphasize their intentions to avoid having to give a real apology. So, you know, just acknowledge you've done harm regardless of your intentions and resolve to do better. 
Um, and that does entail a certain level of cultural and intellectual humility, and without which we recognize that, honestly, uh, mentoring as we envision it cannot be possible without those two ingredients, the cultural and mm -hmm. um, intellectual humility totally. underpins everything mm -hmm. that we do. And I, just to quickly uh, add on, um, I think there was a one recommendation of, of the week in the podcast that it was about um, an author that I'm already forgetting of this book, like how, how not to apologize. And it talks about mm. apologizing. And one of the things that I learned that I was like, oh my gosh, this is so obvious once you hear it, is doing the, I'm sorry you feel this way, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's like, mm -hmm. I said something, but you feel this way. And me saying, I'm sorry you feel this way is this idea that like, it, it's it, I'm not at fault from your feelings because of my mm -hmm. rather than saying I am sorry that I caused you mm -hmm. those feelings right which is then taking mm -hmm. that ownership and I think that's that's exactly. that, that is very sensible mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and again um, one last thing if I may add is that all these things are helpful to emphasize to the mentees at the beginning because um, they know that if some sort of problem arises down the path we are on their side which in many yes. mm -hmm. institutions people students feel and know with good reason that if anything happens the institution is always almost always mm -mm. on the side of their of their faculty member the person who um mm. has some kind of authority and power and so it's mm -hmm. right at the outset for everyone to know uh, for especially the mentees to know that hey we're on your side so you can speak up about whatever's going on if you don't like mm. what's happening we're we're here to advocate for you um and mm -hmm. to, um for, you know try and make some faculty member or even researching colleagues and organization look good that's not the emphasis the emphasis is the mm -hmm. well-being and intellectual and personal growth of this um individual the mentee so i have <clears throat> i have a couple of questions here so number one this sounds like fantastic because it kind of sounds like you guys wrote like a whole like practitioner's guide to mentorship and thinking it through which is Absolutely. phenomenal <laughs> but number two i guess like i'm looking for a couple like practical things like so I think a lot of people might be listening to some of the things you described, like, well, I would never say something like hurtful to mm. someone else. Like, do, do you guys have any examples, like maybe without naming anyone, but like of things where you've like experienced or you've heard throughout your program that like someone maybe did harm or caused a feeling in a way that was like unintentional perhaps, but still actually had a negative impact just so we can get an idea of the types of things yeah. that should be on our radar and don't name them put them in the chat <laughs> i think one example which i actually shared full disclosure with the mentors um is, is it was one said to me earlier on in my phd journey that you know you know having a conversation about next steps for a certain course that you know we want to we want people in this program who have the potential to succeed which is a signal that you, I, might have, I might not have the potential to succeed. And it takes me back mm. to even my undergrad days of being in that counselor's office. You know, then I was pre-med. Uh, sorry, and then, uh, Audie, oh. Audie, just to mention, you were the first uh, black person. Exactly. I was the first black, I'm the first black woman in the health econ track of our um, program. Yeah. Wow. Within the school. And I know that. Yes, the first mm. black woman. And it's, it's so interesting, again, like, you know, with George Floyd happening in Minneapolis and in Minnesota, of course. Right you know and the statements that have come out of that and thankfully the types of like more in-depth conversations we're having around curriculum and how we practice our research and how we think of our research questions so all, there are some good things that have come out of that but you know it, it things like that take me to my undergrad days of oh a counselor telling me oh you know i maybe you should do physical therapy which there is nothing wrong with that at all but sort of like lower expectations of what you can achieve because you're a, a black woman 
um, in a predominantly white institution. Um, or, you know, if, if I get access to a, 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 an opportunity, it must be because there, you know, it's a diver, you know, diversity hire, mm -hmm. diversity position, which takes away from the quality of the work that I do, right? Like, you know, we talk about how diversity doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean reduce quality and we need to just even step away from that in making these types of arguments. But yeah, that's an interesting thing that happened to me is someone insinuating about my potential to succeed in the program as opposed to how can we support you to, you know, improve, you know, develop you as a scholar of color, as a scholar in training so that we can support you in your career. So I don't necessarily want to push too hard on your own experience or anything so like tell me if you just want to like stop this and we'll take this part out but I, i'm curious so like let's just continue with that example so like let's say um now within this nice framework that you guys have created something like that occurred uh between a mentor and mentee mm. uh, would you would sort of the framework that you're building up would the next steps like let's say a mentor said that to a mentee be like the the mentee or someone from the organization brings that up with the mentor and then like a full candid discussion is had about it so so everyone can learn from it and move forward is that sort of the recommended path forward when these types of I, I hesitate to use the word transgressions but i guess that's what it is one thing that i just we keep at the forefront what the what the mentee is comfortable with so yes. that's the first point of conversation i see um yeah so we cannot sacrifice the comforts of the mentee for uh to educate someone you know um uh, of course so yeah we also want to step away from that we're not we're not you know we're not um learning you know this is a teachable moments we're not teachable moments for um faculty members and other people in authority um we are just telling them they ought to behave better but not if they don't then we will seek to correct them but that's that's that is at our discretion they they don't mm. they don't we don't owe them um, a lesson. We don't owe them something. In the case that a mentee did come to us and did want to have a discussion, that is something that we would be more than happy to have with the mentor. And so the idea, again, is that everyone, need, we need to step back about, we need to step away from thinking things are about us. It's not about you. It's you made a transgression. You made a slight, a slight error. You said something that was offensive and you understand that you recalibrate and you move on. You know what I mean? And then you just, you just, you just seek to resolve that. Like you don't do it in the future. You don't, you know, commit the same transgression over and over again. And so we would be happy to talk to mentors about that. Um, if that did come up, we haven't had to do that yet. So this is something that we'll kind of under, when, when we're presented with a case, we'll sit down and think through because we like to think through things together. Um, we'll think through how to approach it. But yeah, if that arises, if that arises, um, we do need our mentors and individuals who are part of the program to understand that this is not about them. If somebody's coming to you and telling you that you did something wrong, just accept the fact that you did something wrong and be better. Be better and, and, and seek to do better. It's really just not too difficult. But pride and ego gets in a lot of in the way of a lot of things. And that's why a lot of mentees and people who are subordinate to supervisors feel like there's going to be retribution because people get so upset about feet, like they get so upset because somebody has told them that they might have done something wrong. They think then that they're going to face retribution. And then they're, they're, they're skulking away in the shadows. They're not really talking to their mentor. They're sad. They're, un, they're unsure. They're, and, you know, and it's, it just creates this really toxic environment. And so we do ask our mentors, like Rahma said, they're, it's, it's going to take effort to be a mentor in research and color. We, we right. do want you to come here, but it is going to take effort. And it's going to take you having to listen to somebody who might be 
like a subordinate to you, like me, Rahman, Adi, you know what I mean? So um, yeah, when the, when the time arises, we'll think through how to approach it properly, but we do not, we don't, we won't hesitate at all to discuss these things with the mentors. Chimi also alluded to the, you know, building a sense of community. And as Black women and research scholars, we in research and color, we recognize the need for community and how important it is to build a safe space that our research and color mentees can trust in and rely on. So this is how we exactly approach our mentors, making them understand that it's really important for our mentees to have the safe and supportive community where they can thrive, um, especially as Black scholars and for other scholars of color. Um, we know that in academia, we share some examples. Things can get really, really hard, right? Like it's a toxic, it can be a very toxic environment where scholars of color are often fighting against these negative, you know, it's like you're pushing against the tide of these negative stereotypes and misconceptions about our ability to succeed, um, especially in the field of economics. Um, and it's not often a safe space in these institutions where people can grow and progress. So Research in Color is here to build this safe space. It's really important for us to build the safe space where our mentees' goals are affirmed and actively supported. You know, they can strive for that job, you know, beyond their wildest dream um, and strive for positions beyond the limitations of what these academic institutions typically signal. Um, it's a safe space where they feel like they can belong in this field and in whatever field or whatever area of their life that they find themselves. Um, because at the end of the day, it's really important that we recognize that our lived experiences and realities um, are important. And we believe that a good mentoring relationship has to recognize that building this sense of community is a critical starting point. It's a critical part of development. Um, as we are striving, um, uh, as scholars are striving to succeed, we have so much to contribute. I want to let our mentees know that it's not in spite of their background, but because of their background, that they will be successful. Um, the richness and of our experiences and our collective identities will not only improve the research that we're doing, um, but also, and producing, but also result in better public policies that are so much better and re reflective of the society that we find ourselves in and are more equitable. You know what? You said something that I, I, I feel like, I, I know you've said this before, but now like it stuck with me more, which is like because of your background is that you were successful as opposed to in spite like, of instead of, in spite of, which I think is so interesting to hear now in that we hear so much, I don't know, I want to say negative, but like so much of, the, of what is truly happening out there and that may lead some people to think like oh don't say that out loud because then people are going to think this that in spite of my background but but really having that framework or you no know, it is because of your background that you actually will be super mm -hmm. successful I, I think that's so important to hear Absolutely. and to just highlight because I I feel sometimes the message is the opposite even though it's not maybe intended to be yeah. the opposite right because of that narrative, right? Like we are made to believe that there's something inherently wrong with us mm -hmm. that we have to overcome, mm -hmm. as opposed to the strength of our identities and how we actually will make any work that we find ourselves doing, including research, better because of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If, if, if I may sense. add just one thing. Um, so again, to any faculty members listening, um, <laughs> very helpful that you feel, you know, you can set an environment in which it is um, 
um, it is okay or even encouraged to share struggles. Um, I know there's some professors who do this really well, but mm. you know, feel make it a point of just not talking about incessantly about how you should be successful, how you were successful in doing X, Y, Z. You can mm. and maybe should mention that sometimes research can be hard, that even the best laid plans, you know, go awry, that sometimes your research agenda falls apart and everything. Um, yeah, so I think it's helpful to just remind your scholars that failure is almost an inevitable part of research. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I actually, I had this come up with an undergraduate student that I was advising on something and I kept, I, I, there was just a straight up miscommunication between the student and I, and I was like nothing but impressed with the student, but I kept telling them about how, wow, if you wanted to, you could do X, Y, Z with this and put it in this journal or publish it or do these things, which were like, of course, goals that are like important to me to achieve. And I didn't realize that I was putting onto the student until like, it was kind of too late, so much stress and anxiety because they were interpreting mm. that as I expect you to do ABC because mm. you could possibly do this. And I was like, oh man, mm. like, I wish we would have just like had a that's more a, frank conversation about this from the beginning. That's understanding your positionality, right? That's understanding that you're actually their supervisor and the way that they're receiving the information that you're giving them is not how, it's not how you intended, even though it's yeah. not necessarily malicious, right? So, yes. And we have been hearing, you know, uh, what you did is okay, but you can make it great by doing it. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. Well, I thought this was, you know, this is how far I could take this. They're just not realizing why can this be appreciated for all the effort that I put in it? Why can't it be seen as a good work that I, you know, I put forward the way I yeah. it? To be. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a balance, right? And it's like, it's it's hard to strike that because at the same time, you don't want to like, um, like I, when my advisor in grad school, everything was positive and that, which is great. But then you had to figure out like, mm. is that like a two nod? it's complicated to do and then the other thing is like also even asking them what do you, what would you like to achieve like what do you want to mm -hmm. get out of this a lot of mentors you know well-meaning again but they're like okay you know based on what i see you got to do you know publish in this mm -hmm, journal mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like a checklist are because da, 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 da. so like sending all these signals based on their perception as opposed to even pausing and figuring out what would you like out of this yeah. relationship? Yeah. What's your end goal? And then let's work that. Which kind of highlights, again, this center idea of like, well, if you walk into the mentorship relationship, centering the mentee, then you're not really going to care about the checklist. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to care about, yeah. hey, how can we make you successful in your version yep. of success, yeah. right? And that's- It's important to center at the margins. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the last thing that we expressed to our mentors um, it was that it's absolutely necessary to shift from focusing on your perception of what a scholar might lack to what you as a faculty member, as someone in a position of power with access to resources can do to support them. Because again, there's this weird misconception that people of color and black people cannot simply update when they are provided resources or the support that they need. And it's almost as if people are working from an implicit belief that POC and Black people are unteachable. And we want to totally dismantle that. So like we said, Research in Color admits mentees with a range of experience, some more than others. This means that if you happen to get a mentee who, for example, hasn't learned SATA, instead of having negative thoughts about where they should be at this point and allowing those thoughts to unconsciously guide your interactions with them, you could just give them a, a snippet of your Stata code or direct them to the UCLA um, Stata website, which is phenomenal, by the way, it's incredible, and or give them a Stata book 
that, that can help them learn Stata. Those are all things that you can do. And by interacting with your mentee in this way, you can you start to see them as an, as, as an extension of yourself, which makes for a better space for them to learn and grow. And so that was the last thing that we had to, that we touched upon with all of our mentees, or excuse me, our mentors. And um, that's excellent. That's great. So just to like quickly summarize, I think the, the points that I think are super important and, and takeaways for anyone who wants to enter this kinds of relationship. Um, one is acknowledge your power differential. Don't also keep reminding them of your power differential. Um, recognize that uh, you may have obviously different backgrounds and even though you may try to um, uh, feel like try to make it seem like you your mentee um, and you are very similar that may not come off as that and so be mindful of the ways you're trying to relate to your mentee. Um, what do you mean even if? Uh, All right. you know, good intentions are not enough. Sometimes you're gonna potentially mess up and, and remember that what you may be saying could have right intentions, but in the end you are causing feelings on the other person and that's important to recognize in that relationship so that kind of relationship can grow more easily. Um, obviously create a safe and supportive uh, environment. Lived experiences are important. And, and don't phrase their back, uh, don't frame their backgrounds as obstacles rather than opportunities for them to be successful. And finally, uh, don't shy away from the lack of resources, right? Don't think somebody is less of because they don't have that training. As a mentor, provide that training, mm -hmm. provide those opportunities mm -hmm. for them to grow. That's exactly what your role is and support mm -hmm. to be done. Um, so those are, I think, great takeaways um, to learn from that relationship. Is there any last thing or something you guys want to add to that point? Yeah, one last thing. Mentorship is a skill. This might sound overly didactic and like we're like, you have to do this, you have to do this. Mm. But if you actually just practice it and think about what you're doing and actually go in with, with the intention to be better and do better and continuously work at it, you can just be a great mentor. You actually can just be a great mentor. And it's so easy. The, the, the learning curve, sh it, it should not be that steep. I mean, it should be really easy. So hopefully, hopefully, um, if individuals, um, mentors who want to partake in research and color, they can get their feet wet and we can try and figure out how that we can continue to have them in our, in our program and so that they can continue to be great mentors. Thank you so much for those insights. Every week, we like to ask our guests for a recommendation of the week. This could be anything, a podcast, a command, an app, a song, a quote, a book, a kitchen recipe. Mm, yummy. Anything that improves your life in a small way. So let's start with our many recommendations of the week that you'll have this week. Go ahead. Okay. So I actually wrote this on Twitter a few days ago, but if you have the ability to try unplugging for a couple of hours and reading a book for fun, it's such an integral part of my research process, and I'm truly happy about it. I genuinely feel like people underestimate how truly critical reading a book that you enjoy um, is for generating knowledge and learning, even if it's like the series of unfortunate events or the, Bridget the Bridgerton <laughs> series, you know, just something fun. When do you find time for reading? Really I, I put it in my schedule. Like I, I okay, yeah, no matter what, there are, there, are, there are chunks of time that I have dedicated to myself that I do not let anyone enter like I severely compartmentalize mm -hmm. it's just my space and I if it's if there's a call if there's a meeting I'll say oh I'm so sorry I can't do it I have to do it another day and I will read my book or I'll do my work so that's I know got it that's awesome Adi what about you so I know everyone someone had at some point in the last year at least said this one um air fryer you need an air fryer in your kitchen <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna, gonna have too much at that point get an air fryer ninja air fryer is bomb 
Um, but okay. there's a book that I just picked up uh, last month called Set Boundaries, Find Peace, A Guide to Reclaiming Yourself by Dr. Nidra Glover-Tawab. I hope I'm saying her last name correctly. But it's she's a, um, she's a, a psychologist that... Um, talks about in this in her book about boundaries so not just about setting boundaries the self-help book so of course she's, she talks about it but she also has a practical how to develop healthy boundaries she differentiates between healthy and unhealthy boundaries and uses examples of course redacted from her you know sessions with clients um give gives you give you example of bad uh bad bad boundaries and healthy boundaries so I am really digging the book. I bought the um, the audio version, but I'm definitely going to be ordering the physical book because I need the to be highlighting a lot. <laughs> awesome. That's exciting. I'm, yeah, that sounds like a really interesting book. I ha- I'm terrible with boundaries, so <laughs> that would be good. Just to add to that, um, I think she she's on Instagram and she gives a lot of resources there as yes. well. So that's how I found I her actually on cool. Instagram. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, she's really good. I've, I've learned a lot from her from her posts. Um, and so kind of tied into what um, Chinna Miller said, I've become a huge fan of audiobooks yeah. the past three, four years. Um, and so I went from like reading none to reading so many of them in a year. So everything is kind of an extreme school to me. Um, so I wanted to recommend two apps that I keep talking about and I promise they're not paying me. Um, that's how often I talk about them. It's become necessary to even that disclaimer they're called librivox and libby they're both free but for libby you have to have a library card or at least it was like that when i set up my account librivox is read by volunteers totally free you don't need a library card nothing uh, but the quality of the narrations can vary quite a bit they're both really excellent and i've managed to get through so many books thanks to them and that can also partly answer the question of when do you have time to listen to um to read books for leisure i so i could be cooking or cleaning mm-hmm. or taking a walk and i'm listening to these or right before i sleep i listen to like you know that you they all have timers um mm-hmm. so you can set 30 minutes and then it turns itself off and then you go Perfect. to bed or you you know carry on with the next activity i love audiobooks so that i i i wanted to be a reader and i and i just wasn't because i didn't get it in my time and to be honest every time i said read a book i'm like i want to do something yeah. else um, but with audiobooks at least i can do other things yeah. while i'm listening to something so i get something <laughs> like, the pandemic like I, we took a lot of road yeah. trips so it was just yeah know, listening to audiobooks or driving the best Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. If people want to find more about you and your work, where should they go? Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube at Research and Color. And, <laughs> <laughs> and if you believe in our mission and you'd like to support our work, please donate on our website, www.researchingcolor.org. All of our donations go towards our programming and scholarships for mentees. So please, please, please donate. Thank you so much. Uh, that's all we have for you folks today. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. And thank you Thanks for everyone. tuning in. Bye. Bye. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Bye. Awesome. You guys did great. All right.